Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Once again, it's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Let me read. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, Renewal. It is a joy and privilege to worship with you all. Even though we are not physically together, in spirit we are one. My name is Luke Wu. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal, and I have the privilege and honor of preaching God's word uh, this morning. Um, if you've been with us, we've been going through uh, the book of Peter, First Peter, and we've been talking about this theme of living in between two worlds, the one that we physically see and is in front of us, but yet, at the same time, we're living spiritually with Christ. We have heaven as our ultimate home. And so what does it look like to live in between these two worlds? And we've gone over how to flourish during times of uncertainty. Uh, definitely something that we are facing now. We also talked about how we can actively wait. We're not just going to sit tight and wait until everything's over, but we're going to be active in the ways that God allows us to. And this morning, we want to talk about how we can continue to do these things with hope as we look to tomorrow, as we look to see what our future brings, as it says to us in his word. And so this morning, we're going to do that by looking at three things, and it's actually just two main points with the final encouragement at the end. The first is what we have to know, what to know, and secondly, in light of that, how to live, how to live in in light of what we know. And finally, the final encouragement is where to look. Where to look. So what to know, how to live, and finally, where to look. So with that uh, before us, uh, let me invite you to pray with me one more time as we seek his help, as we dig into his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, all in our own homes and various places, knowing God, Lord, that you yourself said that when you are in heaven, you will send your spirit 
so that we will be one. And God, we declare we are one. We are worshiping the same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're united by the gospel. We're united by Christ, not by ethnicity, not by how much money we make, our personalities, but only because of Christ. And because of that, Lord, we believe that we are your church, one body. And so, Lord, as we do gather and study your word this morning, may your spirit help us. May he enlighten these words to come alive so that it can truly guide us for our day-to-day living. All for Christ's sake. Amen. So first, what we have to know, what to know. I want to begin by sharing an illustration that I once heard. And it's an illustration of what it would be like if you lived in a spaceship. And so let me adapt this illustration and give you this hypothetical scenario. Imagine in this spaceship, a child went on board. And now pretend this is years in the future where there's lots of space travel. And now this spaceship is headed toward a planet, a new planet with viable living conditions. And it's going to take about 10 years to get there from Earth to this planet. And now in the middle of this journey, and as this child is growing up, Say that you ask this child questions like, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite hobby? What do you want to be when you grow up? And that child's answers are all going to be based on what he or she experiences on a day-to-day basis on that spaceship. What he sees, what he experiences, that's all he knows. Doing the same thing, eating the same kinds of food, observing the same kinds of jobs that are being done in the spaceship. And it's all too easy for that child to think, this is all there is. It's easy to lose track of time and forget that at the end of the 10 years, that child will be in a completely different place with new experiences, new people, a whole new situation. Now stretch your imaginations a little bit more with me. Imagine you yourself is that child. And now replace that spaceship and say that spaceship represents now the world that we live in. What's your favorite food? What are your hobbies? What do you want to be when you grow up? And all of them will be based on what you see, what you experienced, taste, and know, all based on this world, while too easily forgetting that this world is simply a spaceship that's taking us from point A to point B. Point A being the moment we are born, and point B being that destination we arrive at when we take our last breaths. And like that child, it is all too easy for us to think that everything around us, that that's all there is to life. It's easy to lose track of time and forget that at the end of life, we will be in a completely different place with new experiences, new people, a new situation. It's all too easy to lose track of time, to forget that our lives, although it feels like it's the same thing day in and day out, over and over again, nevertheless, you are getting closer to that destination bit by bit. And this is what the Apostle Peter is communicating in his letters. And just as a quick recap, Peter, he writes these two letters to Christians scattered all throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, it was during the time of the Roman Empire where where Christians were still a minority. It was also considered a threat to the existing social norms of emperor and pagan worship. 
And the number of Christians were fairly small at this point compared to later on in history. Now, the prevailing message and the assumption that the empire had, all the people, they thought this, that they had to make most of this life because that's all there was. And how did they do that? In verse 3 in our passage, we see some examples. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, sexual carousing, drinking parties, idolatry. Now understand what the main point of Peter's message is. He's not going in detail describing all these individual things. The scripture does that in many other places. But what he's communicating in our passage is the fact that this kind of living and thinking, it's all happening, it's all going on because verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And verse 5, they forget that they're going to have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They've forgotten that. And it's not too different from the assumptions that the world has today, that this life is all there is. And when we get into a rhythm of doing things, the same things day in and day out, we lose that notion that in the end, that, that history is going somewhere. It's not circular, but it is linear. It has a starting point and it has a finish line. And forgetting this leads us to think that tomorrow is just going to be like today. And the day after is going to be like tomorrow. And we have this expectancy and, frankly, this privileged notion that tomorrow is guaranteed. And that tomorrow is going to be just like today, like we're living in a spaceship. The same old thing, day in, day out. In his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes about this kind of, uh, of thinking in these people. He writes this, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of Christ's coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And on the other hand, we have a different message. Uh, Dick Lucas, a pastor from the UK in the 80s and 90s, he once said this, only the church will remind us of what is tomorrow. The world will only talk about what demands our attention in the present. It's the church that says that there are two fixed points of a beginning and end, and we are going somewhere, and one day we will stand before God. The people during Peter's time were skeptical to believe that tomorrow is not guaranteed. In fact, they refused to believe that they were living in these last days. But contrary to that, Peter tells us in verse 7, and all throughout the New Testament, we are told that the last days, they're not in the future somewhere. But they began when Jesus ascended into heaven. And since that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down into this world, the world has been living the last chapter of its existence. And we, you and I, are living in this last chapter. And Jesus, at the end of his life, tells us what this last chapter is going to look like. Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end times will not be at once. And he says to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. 
Now see if this sounds soberly familiar to what we've seen in the history of our world. The bubonic plague in the 14th century, 75 to 200 million people dead. And on top of that, you can add cholera, tuberculosis, that took about a 1 billion people's lives over the course of its time, smallpox, malaria, natural disasters, the Chinese floods of 1931 and 1887, the Yellow River, combined 6 million deaths earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, all the wars. World War I, over 20 million deaths, one of the most deadliest conflicts in human history. World War II, 15 million deaths in battle, 45 million civilians, and all the European con conquests, and it goes on and on. Now the Gentiles, who in our passage are those who refuse to believe in this, they come up with this rebuttal. They see all that's going on, and they say, yes, we concede that this life isn't pretty. Yes, there are horrible events and tragedies. But they're saying, but isn't the result the same for you and me? For you and for us, aren't Christians just dying just like we are? What difference, therefore, does it make? And Peter responds by saying, it literally makes all the world of a difference. Because in verse 6, he says, yes, Christians have died and they are dead now. But they had the gospel preached to them. And yes, they died. They were judged in the flesh, in their physical bodies. But they have lived and are living now in the spirit. And that makes a huge difference, an eternity of difference. And the fact that they believed this and had this in their possession, a future hope, which means that at the end, it wasn't just point B, but there was a point C for them. And that future hope, that future gospel hope, makes all the difference in the way that they lived in the here and now between point A and point B. Believing in Jesus and in the gospel was never intended to prevent us from our first deaths. But rather, it was intended to provide for us a second life. And it is that second life that enables us to now live in the Spirit. And it makes all the difference. You know, I want to share a name with you. And if you don't recognize who this person is, I think it's going to prove what I'm hoping to communicate. And this name is William Fleming. William Fleming, there's an obscure place in the middle of Asia. Can't find it on a map or the internet. And I came across this name because a friend of mine knew another friend who thought I would be interested. And so he led me through this obscure, random village in the middle of nowhere, driving up this long mountainside. And then after that, walking up this big hill, this huge overlook, all to find these overgrown bushes. And at first I was thinking, you know, what are you trying to show me? And, and I was also thinking, I hope there's no snakes in these bushes. And so pushing aside these shrubs, he shows me two tombstones. And there, I, I think we have a picture here. There I see one in English, and on it says, William Fleming, who in nine, uh, 1898 was the first Protestant martyr in that country, killed along with his Christian co-worker because the local government thought that they were planning this foreign insurrection. And when I saw these tombstones, I was shocked and amazed at what was before me. In this vast country, this is the place where the first Protestant Christian died for the sake of the gospel, and I was in awe, but then I got angry. I got angry because this was the first Christian 
Protestant martyr in this whole country, no one knows about it. It's hidden in the middle of nowhere. No recognition, no awards, no accolades, nothing. And I thought, he deserves better. They deserve better. But you see, me getting angry over this, thinking that, and forgetting that tomorrow is never guaranteed, it goes to show that I can also easily forget that there is a point C after death. It's forgetting that William Fleming, he's not in the middle of nowhere. He's not underneath these shrubs. He's forgetting that he has something far greater than the best that this world has to offer or honor him with. And William Fleming, he's not giving one infinitesimal thought of what he could have gotten on this world. He's probably saying and thinking, don't you be concerned about me, Luke. I'm having the time of my life. In fact, I'm praying for you, that you make the most of yours, living according to God's will, living in the Spirit, and to live not for this world, but for the world that I'm in. Hebrews chapter 11 says that these are the people those who have had the gospel preached to them of whom the world was not worthy. And there are more, brothers and sisters, more of whom the world is not worthy to even name. Chapter 11 says that there are women who received back their dead in the resurrection. Some were tortured. Some refused to accept release from prison so that they might rise again to a better life. Suffering mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains, all these nameless, hidden somewhere in the obscure places of this world because they are those whom the world is not worthy to name. All of us are living in these last days. We are all headed towards something in this spaceship called Earth, and it's filled with tribulation, plagues, and suffering. And the gospel does not necessarily protect you from these things while here on Earth, but for those who believe, has something far greater than what this world has to offer. And because of that, we can live according to God's will and live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's now move on to now how we are to live in light of knowing this reality. And now you can take this as the application of our passage. Knowing all this, how are we now to live while we are on this spaceship? Now, let's put our fingers on verse 1 and see that it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with Peter saying, For those of you who identify yourself with Christ, Identify yourself also with how he suffered in the flesh in his lifetime. Jesus himself says in John 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If Jesus is your master, then as his servant, you cannot dismiss yourself from what he faced during his lifetime. Expect the sufferings of tomorrow. Now, I want to make two qualifications here. First, Peter's not saying that we have to prepare ourselves to die on the cross for the sake of other people, just like the way that Jesus himself died. He doesn't say in verse 1, suffer the exact same way that Christ suffered. But rather, what he's saying is, it says, with the same kind of thinking, 
the same way of suffering, meaning sacrificial suffering. A suffering that comes out, out of a result of us loving others for the sake of God's glory. And so we're not called to die for the forgiveness of sins like Jesus did. That was a unique calling that Christ had as he took upon the sins of this world. Now the second qualification is this. Peter's not talking about suffering in general. He's not talking about general hardship that everyone goes through due to the fact that we are living in these last days, natural catastrophes, disasters. All of these things, we have to understand that all of us suffer generally. Losing your job because your company's downsizing or hearing news that someone is sick. That happens to everyone, Christian or not. But what he's saying is to suffer in the same way of Christ, which means to suffer for the sake of the gospel for the sake of bringing glory to God by the way of your life, the way that you live and the way you act, the way you speak, the way you share this message of salvation to the world. Now, for the Christian, the cause of Christ and the suffering that comes as a result of that is is what is to be expected. That's what tomorrow will bring. And it's taking the risk of, of being ostracized, shunned even, when you offer to pray for your neighbor. It's the risk of being labeled as uneducated or bigoted or ignorant because you're willing to show and tell others, yes, God is real. He is in control. He does love you. Can I share more? On the one hand, it's the suffering that results of you saying something kind to your spouse. The suffering that results when you have to love and be patient with your children. And they did nothing to deserve that kindness. But because you believe that Christ loved you first, it was kind to you first, you suffer the loss of your pride by loving them the way Christ loved you. And on the other hand, it's the suffering of those who died for the sake of bringing one more to know Christ, the William Flemings of the world. It could be either of those things, but what all these things have in common is that it is suffering because of Christ, not simply suffering because that's how life is. And for those who expect this and arm themselves for it, it shows you something about yourself, doesn't it? It says that it shows you that you are no longer under the power and dominion of sin. Peter writes, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And now he's not saying that you are sinless in this lifetime, but rather that you are no longer dominated by it. Whereas before Christ, all that you can do and all you want to do is sin. But now with Christ in your life, you do not have to be under its power. And you are able now through the Holy Spirit to be holy and righteous. And the fact that Peter makes these two options is very astounding here. He's saying there's only one of two ways that we can live. You can either live according to Christ's suffering or you can live in sin. John Piper says it more bluntly. He says, choose suffering because if you don't, you will choose sin. If you come to the point where you suffer for righteousness sake, you have seized from sin, not perfection, but a clean break with the past of sin, he says. And so to arm yourself with this kind of thinking means that you make these mental and these spiritual connections with the suffering you encounter day after day because of Christ. And I remember in college, 
amongst a few of my foolish friends who would have this thing where we would go around saying, for the gospel. And at first, we said whenever we faced some kind of inconvenience or difficulty. But then later, we said it literally at the end of everything. And at first, it was well-intended. For example, we were on a mission trip, and we had to eat something we didn't necessarily like. But for the sake of the others and for the host, we would say, for the gospel, and eat it. Or when we had to wake up really early in the morning for church, we would get up and say, for the gospel, and get out of bed. But then it eventually got out of hand, and we tried to look all holy in front of one another. You know, my friend would spill something on his shirt, and he would say, for the gospel, and we'd just stare at him. Or another friend, he would get back his exam and get a very bad grade, and he would say, for the gospel, and we would say, no, that's because you were foolish and didn't study. It's a silly illustration, and I know, but as I'm thinking about it, it does get at this idea that if you're prepared to think about something beforehand, you make the connection a lot faster. If you arm yourself with this Christ-like suffering, thinking like this, perhaps we can say, for the gospel, more often than not. Saying for the gospel rather than for my comfort, for my convenience, for my pleasure, for my future. So let us before prepare and to think like this, even before tomorrow comes. And as soon as it comes, we can say, for the gospel. Peter says that this kind of living is going to produce some results. Results around the world. The people around you, they're going to think that you're going to be, you're strange. They're going to ridicule you. And they'll be surprised and wonder why you're not living like they are. Verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And this was going on during Peter's time. The Gentiles ridiculed and maligned the Christians because they lived differently. They didn't participate in the public festivals or or the national holidays that were built around emperor worship or pagan gods. They refused to go to social occasions where, where the whole point of it was to get plastered and to live in sensuality and the way that these Christians treated the poor, honored and respected women, foreigners, their servants, especially in a dominant patriarchal society. They even protected and saved babies who were abandoned. They even went into towns and villages of those who were sick, even at the risk of their own safety. And yet, as one commentator writes, Christians were seen as haters of humanity, politically disloyal, at the very least, abnormal. They were accused of crimes, for example, cannibalism, because they ate flesh and drank blood during communion. But you see, when that kind of suffering comes, what do these Christians fall back on? They fall back onto the first point of this message. They remind themselves that they're living for something completely different from those around them, the life after this one. And it provides comfort. And assurance. You know, George Whitfield, in the mid 18th century, was this preacher who who won thousands and thousands of people uh, over for Christ with his outdoor preaching, and literally thousands of people would come to hear him speak. And now this was in the 1700s. Now Tim Keller, uh, this pastor, once shared that if you read his journals, however, you're going to see a man who preached on average about 30 years twice a day. And eventually he died of asthma because he gave his, poured out his life for the sake of preaching. And yet, he was always ridiculed in the newspapers. 
the press, the people in the pulpits constantly made fun of him. And the reason why he preached outside to all these people was because nobody would let him preach inside. And he says that if you read his journal, you'll read things like, today I got another attack. There was another book circulating around calling me that I had five wives. Another one saying I was an illegitimate child saying this and that. But then if you go to the bottom of his entry, he writes this. Oh well, in just a few minutes, I'll be standing before the great throne anyway. And he fell back on that truth and was comforted and strengthened by that the Lord, he will make all things right in the end. His opinion ultimately matters. And that's what it means to live in the spirit according to God's will, like we see in verse 6. Knowing that comforts us when we do suffer for the cause of Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, let us do these things in this passage. Even though it might look strange to those around you, continue to pray. Even when it seems like prayer is not working, we hold fast and with sober minds and self-control for the sake of our prayers we get on our knees. Verse 8, we keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, we show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so what does that look like for each one of us? It's varied. It's going to look different for you and for me. And I love how Charles Spurgeon once said, he says, just look around you, put out your hand, and do the first thing that comes within your reach. He says, if you're a nursemaid, when you get home, help the children say their prayers and tell them about gentle Jesus. He says this, he says, if you have a number of children around you and you can hardly get out, and no can he wrote this in the 1800s, even though that's what we're facing. He says, if you have a number of children around you, you can hardly get out. He says, don't think there's nothing you can do for Jesus. My dear good soul, you are the very person who has much to do for Jesus. You have a great and precious charge entrusted to you. Seek to bring all those dear children to the Savior. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He says, in such a city as this, he lived in London, There's so much to be done that you may just put out your hand and do the first thing that comes within your reach. That is the best thing for you to do. And it's going to look different. This man named Leon DeLong did exactly that. And he worked at this cable company in Seattle, and he worked until the age of 60. And he retired then, but he didn't stop working. And nearby, his daughter, she was a manager, of these high-rise buildings downtown. And she told him once about how they would make sure that at the end of every night that there would be a fresh roll of toilet paper in each stall. Even if for some there were only a few sheets that were used, they would actually throw them away and replace it with new toilet paper so that no lawyer or bank executive would ever have to draw a blank toilet paper roll. And so they would throw all these, what they call stub rolls, that had half an inch or even an inch of toilet paper left on them. And Leon, when he heard about this, he took these stub rolls and picked them up. And he donated them to the food bank. He collected about two to 3,000 stub rolls every other week. And he did this for 15 years after his retirement. If you do the math, 
That's about a million toilet paper rolls. This was in 2015, and really was divine providence how I came across this newspaper article on toilet paper, and it wasn't about hoarding, but the exact opposite. That looks different, doesn't it? In an interview, he called it, it's just a simple, mundane job. But see, I see it as Leon, simply putting out his hand and doing the first thing that came within his reach. No pun intended with the toilet paper. Let's end with this. And I want this to be an encouragement. Where to look. Because we may know something, we may do something, which are the first two points, but while we're doing it, it really matters what you're focusing on. Now, Joanne and I, uh, we've been playing basketball as our mandatory outdoor activity we placed upon ourselves, and you know, we're going over the fundamentals of shooting a basketball. And I'm teaching her, number one, what to know. Okay? The goal is to put the ball in the hoop. And the second point is how to do it. The ball placement on your hands, using your legs, and so forth. But then it's also important where she's looking, at the hoop. And so likewise, we may know what to do, we may know this and we may do it, but we also have to look in a certain direction as we live in these last days, doing God's will according to the Spirit. First, you have to look forward. You have to look forward in time because only then you'll be looking at the final result of all that you're doing here on earth. But you can't simply look forward, but you have to look forward with the hope and assurance that the gospel brings. Because if you just look forward without any kind of assurance of what the future holds, all that's going to give you is fear and anxiety. And that's what crisis does, right? A crisis or or the threat of danger will interrupt your status quo. Why? Because you're so focused with the present. And that crisis will force us to look forward, asking questions like, what's going to happen to me tomorrow? And that's the question looming in many people's minds with COVID-19. What's it going to look like next week, next month, or even next year? What's it going to look economically, with schools, with my health, and so forth? And not having any guarantee of what it's going to be like can only warrant anxiety and fear. So you can't just look forward. You have to look forward in hope and in the assurance of the gospel, something that is guaranteed. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says just that, that if you believe that he died for you, to save you from your sins. You also believe not only did he save you from your sins, but he saved you for something. He saved you for a guaranteed future that is securely in the hands of God Almighty. And as Romans says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in this future hope, we were saved. Not a maybe kind of hope, but a guaranteed hope that says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am convinced of this, that no angels, no rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, death, width, or breadth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to earth, and he died for us. Not only to forgive us from our sins, but to guarantee your future. 
so that your investments, when you live according to the Spirit here on this earth, will result in the glory of God. It will never be wasted from the smallest good of saving a roll of toilet paper for someone to the most sacrificial one, like giving up your life as a martyr for the gospel. And he guarantees your future body that even if death comes upon us today, that there is a perfect, sinless, glorified body that knows no tears or sickness. He also guarantees the satisfaction of all of your longings, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically, and it's waiting for us tomorrow. And mostly, he guarantees himself that you will finally arrive at home, the home you set out for, into the arms of your Father, waiting for you. So let us look forward and hope. And as also, let's look upward. Because the same grace that saved you for tomorrow is the same grace that will be given to you today. For in verse 10, God gives all of his varied grace, different amounts, different kinds, at different times. And for Peter says, as you serve in the here and the now, God will supply the strength that you need. He will never demand anything of you that which he does not first supply. And I'm confident that in the moment of William Fleming's final breath, God supplied him with the courage and confidence and reminded him of what awaited him in future glory. I'm confident that in the moments of of frustration while you're at home, he will grant you the strength to show patience and kindness to the undeserving. I'm confident that for whatever hardship that is in front of you, whether it be from COVID-19 or anything else, God will supply the grace you need to never ever waste the hardships and suffering you encounter, but allow those to be testimonies of his grace that says, it wasn't me, but he who strengthened me. And that's what our God calls to do, one day at a time, as we're headed towards our final hope and our destination, to look forward and to look upward for his grace. And when he does return or calls us home, he will not catch us looking downward in defeat, or inward in our pride, but our eyes will already be fixed upon him, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. I've been waiting for this day.